Well, good morning. Really great to be with you all. Uh, the past number of years, I've gotten to know Pastor Matt quite well and uh, really enjoy his friendship and fellowship. And uh, when my wife and I are here in New York, we've been going back and forth to Texas quite a bit because of my wife's uh, mom, who is uh, aging and ailing. Uh, we spend most of our time worshiping here together with you, and it has been uh, a supreme delight, and we're most blessed to be able to share the word with you this morning. Uh, we want to continue in the series you've been doing in the book of Romans, so if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 12. For those of you who uh, don't have a Bible with you, it should be page 891 in the Pew Bible. And I want to pick up exactly where uh, Pastor Matt left off last week. Now, I'm not sure why he actually inserted me into the middle of the series, except it might be by negative example. And uh, so he gets a chance to say, see how I preached the first part? See how you shouldn't handle the second part? Now here's the third part, and it'll work out quite well. Either way, you'll come away blessed, I pray. Uh, as uh, my dad used to say from time to time after this sermon, some of you will uh, rise up inspired and others may wake up refreshed. Uh, I'm, I'm happy with either one. I, I truly am. Uh, persecution. Persecution is not a topic that we in American evangelicalism have wrestled with very much historically, at least not in my generation. Although that does seem to be shifting a bit now. I think some of us are sensing that. But to Paul's audience in this letter to the Romans, it was already a major reality and one which was going to increase steeply and quickly in the coming years. It's not surprising then that there are more than 30 references to persecution raised in the New Testament over the writing and not least by Jesus himself. He mentions it right out of the gate in the Sermon on the Mount uh, and then in his final discourses with the disciples, both in Matthew 23 and uh, then in John 15, he addresses it directly. Let me just point you to John 15, picking up in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do, they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. Well, not only did Jesus raise this often, but it became the topic of early apostolic preaching as well. Acts 14 reminds us that when uh, Paul and Barnabas went back to areas that they had evangelized earlier, quote, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, close quote. Well, we have taken good treatment almost as a right in our generation. But it was not so with the early church. With what I just read in mind, I'm reminded of the words from commentator Richard Lenski. 
He wrote, uh, in the early church, affliction was expected as a matter of course. The scars it left were considered medals of honor bestowed by the Lord's own hands. Now, most Christians expect to get through unscathed, without even a bruise, and they cry out if they're buffeted a little as though a great wrong were being done to them instead of experiencing something that is altogether normal. So many even try to avoid the world's hate and to win its favor by shaping doctrine, practice, and conduct so as to avoid offending the world. So many Christians resemble the children of this world to such an extent that they cannot be distinguished from them. I think he's right. I think he hit the nail right on the head. The earliest church, the earliest Christians, first knew the intense persecution that would come from the Jews. And then, uh, since Christianity was considered a Jewish sect, they were being persecuted by the Romans, but because they were part of a Jewish sect. And then, then as they emerged more and more, they were persecuted by the Romans on their own ground, and then in various contexts and locations by all sorts of groups. It seems that everywhere the gospel spread, persecution followed. And so I think this portion is timely for us in our time and place. We might even consider this as a slightly prophetic and preparatory uh, passage for what is probably coming here in the U.S. if we continue on our present path. And being prepared is going to be important for us. So in this passage, the second part, which starts in verse 9 of what one commentator calls the Christian ethic of love, we're struck by this rather startling statement at the beginning of verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How this, much, much have, uh, how this must have sounded in the ears of the Roman Christians at this particular point in time. And we need to note that at the outset, this is not some mere suggestion. Grammatically, as it sits in the passage, this is a straightforward imperative. It's a command. It's not an option. And it's the first imperative in a series of imperatives. So believers are not just to endure persecution, but we're to respond to it in a way, and I want to mark this well because we'll come back to it by the time we're done. We need to respond to it in a way which is going to strain our natural human abilities beyond their breaking point. It's to learn how to love in Christ's own supernatural way. In the same way that when he was on the cross, he could plead for his murderers. When in the throes of a most excruciating death, he could gasp out of his impaired lung capacity, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, don't get me wrong, they knew they were murdering somebody. They knew that he was an innocent man. They were fully cognizant of those things. But what they did not know were the, the cosmic implications of what they were doing. 
And neither will any of those who persecute us or have persecuted the church down through the ages. They have no idea that those who are born again by the Spirit of Christ are, as it says in Zechariah 2.8, the apple of His eye. They don't know that. Now, before we move too far down the road here, we need to address the structure of the passage because it's a little dicey. One commentator notes, and I quote him, there is very little agreement among commentators regarding the internal structure and development of thought in 12, 9 through 21, to which I have added my hearty amen. It's been fun. Uh, and the problem is self-evident. It comes to us right out of the gate. You start off with, these, with this command, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, and then it moves into these statements. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And never be wise in your own sight. So, so Paul starts with this imperative to bless. And to bless and our persecutors. That's the object of the, of the verse. But then in the next two verses, he gives more imperatives that would seem at first glance to fit more in line with what Pastor Matt was preaching last week in the opening part of this passage. At first glance, they appear to be things that we would exercise toward the brethren, not toward persecutors. And then he seems to revert back to the issue of persecutors um, and deal in verse 17 and on through the end, through 21. So the question is, are we really to apply these sentiments to our persecutors? Is that really what, what Paul is commanding us to do? And because that has been the question, there have been two main responses to it. The first is that some argue that there is this wonderful fluidity in Greek writing. It's called a paranesis where you can introduce a subject and talk about it, and then maybe jump to another thing and then come back to it. And you're not quite sure what's going on there. That's, that's a legitimate way of reading the passage. So in 15 and 16, Paul's simply referring back to the subject that he covered in 9 through 13, and then comes back to finish his discussion from 17 on. The second approach is that Paul is dealing with the believer's response to persecution all the way through. That he never does jump back to the original thought. But that then means we've got to really wrestle with how we take verses 15 and 16 and fit it into his train of thought. So there's going to be a little bit of work to, to do there. I think R. Kent Hughes has it exactly right when he writes this, quote, The apostle now switches his focus from love's actions in the church to love's actions in the world, close quote. I really do think that's the most natural way of reading the passage, and reading it as a cohesive whole, and so I'm going to try and track out Paul's thought process with that in mind. So we're going to break the passage down to these four sections. First, in verse 14, this initial command, a command which is a call to divine love, we'll tease that out some, and then secondly, in verses 15 through 18, some cautions. Because persecution brings with it particular or peculiar temptations. 
And he's going to address those, I believe. Then in 19 through 20, some commitments in how to live out this divine love. And then in verse 21, his conquering principle, which is overcoming evil with good. In other words, not fighting fire with fire. Or as my wife said when we were talking about this earlier, kill him with kindness. That's kind of where we'll be going. But we'll, we'll get there. Uh, I need to do one more bit of housekeeping before we dive into the passage as a whole, if you would. And that is, if you'd look in your Bible, back up to verse uh, 1 of this chapter, where Paul begins with, I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore. It's an important word. Raised in a preacher's home, where my dad was always wont to help us as children uh, understand and, and uh, pull the, the Word of God apart in a meaningful way, in a solid way, he would always say, when you see the word therefore, look above it to see what it's there for. You've probably heard that before. Uh, it's not a 100% rule, it's not hermeneutics in its solid form, but it is useful most of the time. And in this case, it really is. Leon Morris uh, writes this, therefore is an important word Paul is not writing an essay in abstract ethics, but telling the Romans what their conduct must be in the light of what God has done, and I take it as referring to the whole massive argument that has preceded it. Well, there's been 11 chapters that have preceded it. Doug Moo agrees with that. He says, therefore, must be given its full weight. Paul wants to show that the exhortations of 12, 1 through 15 or 12.1 through 15.13 are built firmly on the theology of chapters 1 through 11. That's absolutely true. Now, Pastor Matt's already alluded to this several times in his, in his previous sermons. Last week, he noted that the beginning of this chapter marks the last great division in the book. That from 12.1 to the end is this new section. And he said, let me quote Pastor Matt, Paul moves from learning the gospel to living the gospel, from doctrine to duty, and from principle to practice, close quote. He's spot on. That's exactly what's happening here. And what a practice Paul is after, what he's about to challenge us with. It's nothing less than living out love that is truly supernatural and can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, as you and I come to these words, as his original readers came to these words, we come as a people who have already heard and obeyed the gospel. We come as a people who are already redeemed, already justified, indwelt by the Spirit of God. So, so this isn't some form of moralism that he's trying to bring to the, to the fore. It's a call to live in the light of all that, that Paul has explicated up until this point. And as is true in all of Paul's applications, you know this from the preaching here and from reading the Bible on your own, that Paul is always careful to keep his readers from falling into uh, the twin errors of either mere moralism or legalism. He's always laboring to, to tie right living together with right believing and the inward transformation of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's his approach to anything like this. He's never after simple behavior modification. And if I might say, that's a sad thing that happens in the church. 
that sometimes instead of true sanctification, we slip into mere behavior modification. That's not sanctification. Paul's aiming at a view of sanctification, which is eventually going to find the believer behaving out of a holy instinct as naturally as God himself does. Now, if that sounds high, you're right. It is. That's what's meant by being conformed to the image of Christ. For you see, I picked this up from John Bunyan years ago. God never does anything because it's right. As though there is some standard of right and wrong outside of himself. God only acts out of his own holy nature. And if he's going to conform us to the image of Christ, he's going to have to bring us to that same place. And that's going to take nothing less than utter and complete transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's in the process of of working out in all of those who have been born again by his Spirit that we might be like him. Truly transformed by the renewal of our minds. Biblical truth wrought out in the soul by the indwelling Spirit. So, All of that was just precursor. Now I'll start my timer. All right? That was just introduction. So you might want to take your shoes off and relax. That takes us back to verse 14 and this initial uh, beginning into the chapter. This command, this call to divine love. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That should be obvious to us, although I'm going to remind you just briefly that persecution can come from inside the church as well as from outside and from the world. Church history bears this out only too tragically well. Professing Christians have been found to be persecuting other believers in horrible ways at various times. One thinks especially of the ways that, that some of the Reformers were persecuting the Anabaptists during the Reformation period. They persecuted them even to death in some cases. So the things Paul's about to unpack for us have applications in both instances. Maybe you have a brother or sister in Christ or a group in Christ that have persecuted you. We're going to unpack that. Or maybe you've suffered some persecution from out in the world. We're going to take a look at that. But, but I want to be really clear about something here when we talk about persecution. In our day... Uh, it's common for some to think that if anybody disagrees with them, if anybody contradicts them, if anybody simply doesn't like them, that they're somehow being persecuted. Paul's talking about persecution, about the threat of physical harm or the loss of goods or livelihood, even death. Paul's no snowflake. He has in mind the things that that he wrote about in 2 Corinthians 11, where he talked about as his own personal experience that he was subject to imprisonments and countless beatings, and he was stoned in Lystra, and he was receiving the 40 lashes minus one of the Jews at least five times. Real persecution. His feelings weren't hurt. He was really being attacked. 
And doubtless there are really probably few of us here who have suffered that kind of thing, worse than maybe a a crossword or a mocking statement from the world for the cause of Christ, even if perhaps we've been marginalized or falsely accused or misunderstood by some in the church over one disagreement or another. No, he's, he's moving us regard that, beyond that. Regardless the means, the severity, or the source, the imperative is going to remain. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And believe me, I understand that's a tall order. Please take note, this is far more than a mere turn of the cheek or a refusal to retaliate. It is mindfully seeking the benefit of the persecutor. In keeping with the opening of this portion in verse 9, it is to love them, as Pastor Matt preached last week, unhypocritically, without a mask. Last week, Pastor Matt said that to love was, quote, to act for the good of others to the glory of God, close quote. I'm going to steal that, but I'm going to modify it just a tad. I'm going to use this as a definition for where we go today, that love is to earnestly desire and act in another's best interest in regard to their souls before God. Let me repeat that. It is, uh, it is to earnestly desire after and act in another's best interest in regard to their souls before God. Love always has that as, at its base. Acting in the other party's best interest, but their best interest, and we always have to go here, is always rooted in what's best for their souls before God. That's always their ultimate best interest. And it's in that way that not everybody's going to understand our love for them because we consider their souls above their desires and we're just going to have to risk that we're going to have to risk being misunderstood on that level but this is how we can love our enemies if we if we're taking this definition it's how we can love the unlovely because it's a love that's independent of the need for attraction And it moves us beyond mere sentiment and can persevere under the most extreme circumstances. Even when not just unrequited, but when utterly rejected. And it's how he wants us, how he calls us to love our persecutors. It's not just to let it go. It's to actually seek God for their benefit. It's, it's to change a, a, a common misunderstanding in us. It's not just to pray about them. It's to pray for them. To want to see them blessed by God, even as we are blessed. So with that command solidly in view, we move into the next portion in verses 15 through 18. And here he's going to give us another series of imperatives. And I've called these the cautions. Cautions because of persecution's peculiar temptations. Let me unpack that. This is a series of imperatives, as I said. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why would he bring that in at this point? Well, because when we're persecuted... There's a temptation toward hardness of heart. 
a a self-protective mechanism that results in little or no care for the souls of the persecutor, whether they're unbelievers or Christians. And this hardness of heart works in two directions. We can neither rejoice at their good fortune nor sympathize with their woes. Has someone been persecuting the church? Maybe in public policy or in politics? And have we allowed our own hearts to sympathize with their woes? That's pretty heavy, isn't it? But you see, hardness of heart is like turning down the volume knob on a radio. If you turn down the volume knob on a radio, you don't quiet just one station. You quiet them all. And that's the way hardness of heart works. When we grow hard against anyone, we grow hard ultimately against everyone. We lose the ability to sympathize or empathize with those who are in need. We lose the ability to rejoice with those who rejoice. Everything becomes muted. And don't we see how wonderfully Jesus met this in contrast? At the very opening of his ministry. And he knows full well his ministry is going to be short. He's going to be persecuted, prosecuted, hunted down even to death. But we see him right at the beginning rejoicing with others at a marriage. Astounding. You would have thought he was already contemplating his end. And feeling the weight of it. You mean he could take time off to go to a wedding and have fun? Yeah. Astounding. And then in Mark 1, when a leper comes to him, the text says he was moved with pity. He he didn't have a problem sympathizing with the woes of others. But think of it when he was being attacked in the garden on the night before his crucifixion. Peter at that moment, very understandably, Peter, me sharing something of Peter's own nature... Peter whips out his sword and hacks off the right ear of Malchus. And I'm saying, good for Peter. Peter Peter didn't believe in concealed carry. He believed in open carry. And what does Jesus do at that moment? He picks up the ear and he heals Malchus. The one who was there for the very purpose of binding him and carrying him off to be tortured and crucified. He never turned down the volume. But when we're persecuted, it's tough for us. He never loses his compassion, even in that moment. Hardness is so far from him, that even on the cross, he commits the care of his mother to John. He models for us what he's calling for. That we we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep and if our hearts grow hard, we can't do either one of those, either for the lost or for believers. Paul's warning us that can be a problem. Secondly then, he says live in harmony with one another. You see, because in times of persecution, There's the temptation to isolation. It can be isolation from the world, 
which might be cloisterism. We might say, wow, the world's just turned so terrible. Let us all go live in little closed Christian communities so we don't have to face that. Or it might be isolation from the church. People in that church have hurt me, so I'm not going back there. But as often as Jesus is persecuted, even in the synagogue, it remains his custom throughout his life to be found there on the Lord's Day. Luke 4.16 tells us that it was his normal habit. There he was with the believing and the unbelieving alike, with the sincere and with the hypocrites, with the devout and with the merely cultural Jews. And if there was anyone who could have lived in a state of perpetual agitation and irritation at the failings, the foolishness, the crassness, the wrong-headed stupidity with which he was surrounded, it was Jesus. He should have walked around just perpetually perturbed. And he wasn't. He seeks out the company of others, even though that's the condition that he's living in. And not to engage them in endless debate and correcting every little foible, but living in harmony with those who were sounding some pretty sour notes all the time. This is so much true that, in, again, in his closing hours, he told his disciples numerous times that he was on his way to die, but on his way to die, let's have dinner with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then at the Last Supper, and we're told in Scripture, he knew that his time was short, that his hour had come, and yet he tells his disciples how earnestly he desired to get together with them and share that last meal. The very men who he knew full well would totally abandon him and even deny him to his persecutors in just a few hours. That's love I'm not capable of. I don't know about you. Thirdly, Paul warns, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. You see, persecution always brings with it the temptation to imagine ourselves as special, and we don't deserve this treatment. After all, we're God's people. We're good people. And, and we shouldn't be handled this way. We're not being respected or regardless as, regarded as we ought. You know, we start the Christian Anti-Defamation League. How dare they say terrible things about us? As though Jesus was totally mystified by that when he said, they're going to say terrible things about you because they said terrible things about me. But today we rise up in righteous indignation. Why, those people, they don't recognize us. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't have a clue. It's amazing how, how we who are self-consciously grace-oriented people can nevertheless let our thoughts steep in wounded pride. Theologically, we proclaim and declare that we're wholly undeserving of anything, but then the moment we're slighted, we feel and act as though we actually have deserved something better little contradictory, isn't it? Who do they think they are, these persecutors? 
which has as its subtext, we could read it another way, who do we think we are that others should treat us so shamefully? Indeed, who do we think we are that others shouldn't treat us poorly? It's amazing then that we never hear those words from Jesus' lips. I searched. I even searched in the Greek this week. I couldn't find once where he said, how dare you? Not once. It's not in his vocabulary. He's the one who in Philippians 2 reminds us was in the form of God, but didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He never once stood on his rights. It's profound. And if anyone had rights, it was the incarnate Son of God. I I marvel at how it is that Jesus was more mindful of revealing the glory of the Father than whether or not he's seen for who and what he was. It just isn't his mode of operation. But in our day, we hear Christians all around us endlessly appealing to our rights, that we be treated with proper regard, and that persecution is an affront to our pride. Paul says he's warning us. This is, this is a temptation we have in persecution. And be careful. We find ourselves so far removed from the response of Peter and John in Acts 5, who, when they were jailed and abused, quote, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, close quote. As Jesus' accusers would rightly say of him in Luke 5, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? He identified with us. He wasn't haughty. Rather than defending his own glory before men. On this passage, Spurgeon once wrote, quote, The cold water of persecution is often thrown on the church's face to fetch her to herself when she's in a swoon of indolence or pride. Close quote. Yeah. Four, never be wise in your own sight. This is important because when we're persecuted, we're tempted to assume that we see the entire situation so clearly, even when nobody else does, and so as to know, this always translates over, everybody else's motives too. Persecution, real or perceived, tempts us to think we know better than everybody else, that we've got the lock on what's really going on, the secret, hidden information that nobody else has. In Jesus' case, that was actually true. But you'd never know it. In fact, in John 5.30, Jesus notes, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even in his incarnation, he depended on the Father's wisdom and not judging just on the surface. With this comes the temptation of imagining that, that if we know the reasons behind what everybody does, then we have some power over the situation. You see, we, we understand it perfectly. Perfectly. 
we know all the hidden stuff, so we're not so out of control. We can make sense of it all. We can absolutely know why everyone who harms us does so down to the depths of their souls, down to motives they probably don't even know they have themselves. And it becomes a trap of constant inward agitation accompanied by a total loss of the sense of our trust in God's sovereign hand at work in the things that we can't understand. Christ always rested in the Father's wisdom to order events well. He was God incarnate, but he never tried to wow everybody with his inside knowledge. Calvin wrote on this verse really perceptively, quote, Not thinking of high things, by which Paul means that it is not the part of a Christian ambitiously to aspire to those things by which he may excel others, nor to assume a lofty appearance, but on the contrary to exercise humility and meekness. For by these we excel before the Lord, and not by pride and contempt of the brethren. For nothing swells the minds of men so much as a high notion of their own wisdom. Close quote. Man. Fifth. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You see, when suffering persecution, we can be tempted to cast off righteousness in order to confront evil. We've all seen those movies or TV shows where some great injustice was done and then the aggrieved hero goes outside the law to supposedly bring justice because the normal channels of justice have failed. And so we applaud the the Charles Bronsons, I'll date myself by that one, or the Dirty Harrys for the next generation, or the, the Jack Reachers for this generation. We approve of their repaying evil for evil. So the justice gets done. Or we could think too of those who have murdered abortion doctors or blown up abortion clinics. But remember David? When he was being murderously pursued by Saul? On more than one occasion he could have easily taken Saul's life and justified it. He had already been anointed the next king over Israel as Saul's successor. But how even Saul had to say in 1 Samuel 24, 17, You're more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. He did what was honorable in the sight of all, and God's glory was known because of it. Or again, this brings us right back to Jesus in Luke 9, when he was refused entrance to a Samaritan village because of racial bias, and James and John said, should we call down fire out of heaven to consume them? And as some manuscripts note, Jesus rebuked the disciples because they were not acting according to his spirit. It's not God's way. It's It's a tit-for-tat human trait which does nothing to make the mercy and the grace of God known in the midst of evil. And then his last one. If possible, so far as it depends on you, and it doesn't always depend on you, live peaceably with all. You see, persecution brings with it the temptation to live in a perpetual me-against-them mentality. To never be free of that, that aggravation. And the truth is, we may have many enemies, but we're not to be anyone else's enemy. 
They may be our enemies, but we're not to be theirs. Again, think of how Jesus could have spent every minute of every day pointing out the errors and, the, and chafing at every evidence of human fallenness. I mean, you, you ever hang around stupid people and you kind of say, how long am I going to put up with stupid people being stupid? Now, if there was anybody who could have said, how long am I going to put up with stupid people? It was Jesus. Because everybody was stupid. That isn't where he lives. No, he, he picks no fights. They picked fights with him, but he never went looking for it. And he lives peaceably with all as much as he possibly can. And you say, well, that didn't work out very well, did it? No, it didn't. And that's where the glory of God was really seen. In the cross. It seems that particularly in the light of suffering, persecution, these imperatives, which ordinarily seem quite normal, need to be reinforced for us. I don't know about you, but I know for myself, when I have suffered even mild persecution, if it could have even been called that, these things don't come naturally to me. Oh, how we need the indwelling Spirit of Christ to bring them to the fore. Which brings us to our third division. It's the commitments. How to live out this divine love. He gives us three, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. The text says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So, having dealt with how we might be tempted to respond to persecution, Paul now sets before us a threefold path to commit ourselves to instead. Rather than falling subject to those temptations, put us in this particular action. And the first is this. To commit your persecutions and persecutors to the Lord. To rest in His divine appointments. Look at it here in 1 Peter 3. Peter writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. If Christ is Lord over all and He's holy, you, He can't be sinning against you and what He's allowing to, bring, to come into your life. So, so keep that. Don't let go of it. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you. What's the hope that's in us? That we're not destroyed by these outward things. That they don't drive us to despair because we can trust Him. Yet do it with huh, gentleness and respect. No, let's get online and yell at them in all caps. No. No, we do it with, with gentleness and respect. We, we don't call them names. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Why? 
Well, because it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Wow. We step back as believers, and we know that Christ will make all of it right in due time. So we can leave it to Him. You know the wonderful thing about committing people to the judgment of God rather than taking it ourselves? There's two things He cannot do. He cannot overpunish and He cannot underpunish. He must always do what's perfectly right. Unlike us. Second, commit yourself to blessing your persecutors. What does He say? I say to you, Love your enemies. This is Jesus speaking in Luke 6. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those, again, not pray about, pray for those who abuse you. And, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. So be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Don't grow hard against their needs. But instead, commit yourself to blessing for your persecutor. And then thirdly, commit yourself to their soul's best good. That's what's coming here in this last statement. But I say to you, here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Which brings us to that they might repent and be reconciled to God. What does your text say there? Uh, that you might heap burning coals on their head? <laughs> it's a tough one. Recent scholarship helps us kind of unpack this phrase. It's been a difficult one for centuries. It's a quote out of the Proverbs. And as you know, Solomon collected some of his Proverbs from other cultures, uh, from the outside. It seems most likely that he drew this one from uh, uh, an Egyptian ceremonial ritual in which an offender who was trying to make amends, who was trying to repent, would demonstrate his repentance by appearing before the one that he had wronged with a censer of fire on his head. It was a pretty well-known proverb in Solomon's day. What's Paul's point in pointing us back to it? That when you commit your persecutors and their sins against you to the Lord and trust Him with the outcome and seek to bless them, especially interceding for them in prayer, you become the instrument whereby they are brought to repentance. You're doing what's best for their souls. You're loving them. And we should hope a genuine repentance and reconciliation to God in Christ above any repentance or reconciliation to us. And so we come to the fourth, the conquering principle, which is overcoming evil with good. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We do not conquer our enemies. We conquer evil itself. It's a very different focus. And this only by manifesting the very goodness of God in this world. So here, the idea is not to attack the evil, but rather to pursue the good. And in the pursuing the good, you overcome the evil. And the goal, please keep this in mind, the goal is not to end persecution, but to win the lost and to make Christ known. That's the goal. Now, if all of this seems too hard, too daunting, good. Then you've understood the passage well. It's supposed to be beyond the reach of human effort. It's supposed to cast us back on the Savior and His provisions for us to love in a way that is decidedly not humanly possible. That's exactly what what Paul's after here. And it's why the therefore of verse 1 again is so important. It makes us go back to draw from Paul's emphasis on the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer in chapter 8. Because apart from His work within us, this is utterly impossible. It just can't be done. We, we won't even want to do it, let alone do it. So in closing, we need to take a moment to look beyond and catch it. Yes, I'm closing. And catch a fresh glimpse of how all of this illuminates how Christ has loved us. Because that's, that's where everything flows out of. It's out of that store alone that these things can be fulfilled in us. It's only in being filled with the knowledge of His great love for us and drawing from that river of living water within us by the Spirit that our love too can be genuine and in so doing overcome evil with His good. And we do not love like this by gritting our teeth. We don't do it by making resolutions on New Year's Eve. We love like this by only one means that Scripture provides. We already had it read for us earlier in the service. And if you've got your Bible, I'd, I'd invite you to just turn there quickly again because it's, it's so important. Ephesians chapter 3, picking up in verse 14. Paul praying for the Ephesian church. This most astounding and necessary prayer. Paul writes, it's for this reason that I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family and in heaven and on earth is named. He uses that phrase to show that God is sovereign over all. The one who names things is the one who has power and authority over them. It is God who named every family, so he has authority over all. And this is what I pray to him, that according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, for there's no other way for this to happen. It takes supernatural strength. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that He might treat your heart as His place where He is most at home and most comfortable, so that that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge to what end? 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's no other way to be filled with the fullness of God than for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us to comprehend the incredible, immeasurable, unfathomable love of Jesus Christ. That's what transforms. Nothing else can do it. And so he finishes it by saying that. Now now to him who's able to do not only this, but far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. According to the power at work within us, by the Spirit who's in us, oh, then to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow. All of this by loving in this way, will ensure that we're not overcome by evil, but that we overcome evil with good. So consider these three, three things with me, will you? First, consider the high privilege we're called to in loving as God Himself does. What an astounding gift this is to us. What a privilege that He would call us to love as He loves Second, consider how necessary it is to look to the indwelling Spirit of Christ to love like this. This can't be done by any human resolution. And thirdly, consider how it is that Christ has loved us so as to be so filled and thrilled at His love to be transformed by the vision of it all. I'm so glad He didn't give us three things in ourselves to do, but just drew us back to Himself. Can I give you one more place where this comes out in detail? 2 Corinthians 3.18 You see, we all with unveiled face, now that we know who He is, beholding the glory of the Lord in Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is His Spirit. Oh, that's so sweet. Only by fixing ourselves on Him and His amazing love can such an inward transformation come about. If you're a believer here today, never forget that these imperatives can only be met in remembering who and what we are in Christ and by the work of His Spirit within. Please don't imagine you can do any of this on your own. And if you are not a believer here today. You're not yet reconciled to God through saving faith in Christ's atoning work on Calvary. Note that you are surrounded today by a great cloud of witnesses. A whole group of people who have found that God reconciles His enemies as we all once were through the cross, through the word of His gospel, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I know that there are those here who would love to talk with you about entering into that knowledge of His saving grace. Don't leave here today without doing that. These imperatives are not a way to make yourself acceptable to God. That's patently impossible. They are the privilege of those who have been accepted through faith in Jesus Christ, the Christ whose love is so astounding and transformative. And that's what we call you here to today. Father God, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this word. It is a high and holy and astounding word. 
and we commit it to the hearts and the minds of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.